Well, good morning, church. We're going to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis 35 and 36 this morning. Got a lot of territory to cover. So I encourage you to turn with me to uh, chapter 35. If you're looking at the black Bible in the chair in front of you, that's found on page 29. And as always, we encourage you to keep your Bible open, follow along as we read God's word together and as we rely on his spirit to help us to make sense of what we read and we rely on him. I'm not sure if you enjoy roller coasters or not. Um, I usually do okay on roller coasters, but I think the older I get, I'm noticing a change. Uh, This past summer, our family went on a roller coaster, and I knew that I was in trouble because in about 10 minutes into the ride, I felt, about 10 seconds into the ride, I felt nauseous. And, And here's the thing about roller coasters. Once that thing comes over your head and locks in, there's no getting out until the ride is done. And the, and the car comes to a complete stop. So by the time I stepped off, I was feeling green. Genesis 35 marks the end of Jacob's story that we've been looking at for a number of weeks now. And Jacob's life has felt like a roller coaster. Up and down. Faith, then fear. Obedience, then disobedience. But one of the things that we see in Genesis, and I'm thankful for this, is that God's power is not limited such that he only works through perfect people. Because God's power and authority is unlimited, Genesis reveals the glory of God in how he uses messed up, sinful, dysfunctional people like Jacob and his family to bring about his good and glorious plan. Now earlier, Deacon Jay read from Philippians chapter 1, and we read that wonderful verse in chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. When you hear Paul's confidence for the Christian, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will will bring it to completion. Does that sound like good news to you, church? Yeah, and it should, especially in light of the fact that there are days when we sin or times that we drift or that our hearts are cold towards God. Praise God that he will complete the work that he began in us. But what if God's completing his good work in us involves us being uncomfortable, involves us going through a trial, feeling pain, or facing what seems like the impossible. Well, Philippians 1.6 may not feel like good news then. In fact, we may be looking for some way to get off of this ride Because when something doesn't feel good, it's easy to think that it must not be good. But church, we need to establish in our minds and as we walk with God that there is a difference between what I feel and what is true at times. There are times a difference between what we feel and what objective reality is. So 
the parachute on your back may feel uncomfortable. But if the airplane's going down, what I feel needs to submit to what is true because that parachute means life. Friends, the first readers of Genesis were those who had been delivered from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, and they had parents who, when faced with the challenge of taking the promised land, their parents believed the lie that God hated them, that this is hard, so God must hate us. And in fact, they believed that God hated them and that he brought them out of Egypt to die. And so they refused to go into the promised land. And in refusing to go to the promised land, they ended up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And so these first readers of the book of Genesis that Moses had written would have buried their parents. They would have seen funeral after funeral after funeral for their parents during those 40 years. So how could the people of God, these first readers of Genesis, get back on track with God? What about us? Perhaps you or I have drifted from God. Perhaps our hearts have grown cold to God. How can you or I get back on track with God? Genesis 35 and 36 brings the focus that we've had on Jacob's life for a number of chapters finally to a close. And here in the end, we see how Jacob finally, finally gets back on track. And so in looking at him, we learn how we can get back on track with God. This text shows us three things that God does to bring a wayward pilgrim back. So if you're taking notes, point number one is this. God's correction leads to our repentance. God's correction leads to our repentance. And we're going to see that in chapter 35, verses 1 through 8. So look with me at God's word in Genesis 35. Moses writes in verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. Friends, we've been walking with Jacob, and and as we've seen all his life up till now, Jacob has been a trickster, a deceiver, a con artist who grabbed the things that he wanted through schemes and deceit. 
And when his scheming got him into trouble with his brother Esau, Jacob had to leave Bethel a long time ago or else be killed by Esau. But before he left, God takes Jacob and he promised Jacob, I know you got to go, but I promise I will bring you back to Bethel when the time is right. So for 20 years, he, he had fled, and for 20 years, he serves his uncle Laban. And then at the, end, at the end of 20 years, God calls Jacob back to the promised land. He calls him back to Bethel. On the way back, you'll remember, Jacob wrestles with God. And in that wrestling match, God dislocates his hip, making him weak in himself, but strong in God. And after that wrestling match, God changes his name. No longer shall you be called Jacob the trickster. You shall be called Israel. So up till then, things were looking good. He's headed in the right direction. Heading back to the promised land, as God had said. But instead of going to Bethel, as God commanded and Jacob vowed, we learned at the end of chapter 33 that Jacob stops short. He stops in Shechem a city which is not Bethel, it's 24 hours north of Bethel. So he, he obeys, kind of. And his partial obedience was disobedience. And his partial obedience, his disobedience, led to the bitter fruits of sin that we saw last week in chapter 34, which involved deceit and greed and rape and murder, the massacre of a city. As we read through 34 last week, God is not mentioned once. No one seeks God. No one comes to God. No one prays to God. And the result of that was that Jacob's family was left in a mess. For this reason, I love how verse 1 of 35 begins. Nowhere do we see God in chapter 34. Chapter 35 verse 1 begins with, God said to Jacob, Jacob had ignored God, his family had ignored God, but God in his patience takes the initiative, comes to Jacob, and speaks to him. In his mercy, God stands at the door of a wayward pilgrim and knocks. He wasn't done with Jacob. So God speaks to Jacob as he's sitting in the muck and the mire of his sinful compromise. And he says, Jacob, arise, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. He's reminding him of his vow. And so this word to Jacob in chapter 35 is a new beginning. It is a loving correction. And it is a challenge. It's a challenge because After Simeon and Levi massacred the city in their unbridled rage, their their unjust massacring of the city in chapter 34, Jacob's concern we saw in chapter 34 verse 30 was that these Canaanites and the Perizzites who were around them would be upset. They would gather themselves together and attack him and his family, and he and his family would be destroyed. That was his concern. And so God's call in chapter 35 to go to Bethel meant leaving the safety of Shechem and putting himself and his family in the open, vulnerable 
to the attack of the Perizzites and the Canaanites that he feared. He'd have to trust God if he went to Bethel. Friends, God's word, which challenges Jacob, is a reminder for us that God's word to us often challenges what we feel. It often challenges what we desire. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. Obedience may be frightening, obedience may be uncomfortable, it may be humbling, but what we feel must submit to what God commands if we're gonna be a Christian. When Jesus' teaching got difficult in John chapter six, many just got up and left him. There were huge crowds, and when his teaching got difficult in chapter six, John six, many just left. And when Jesus asked his disciples, are you gonna leave too? Peter's response was instructive for us. Peter's response to Jesus was, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. We're in. This is hard, but we're in. God's correcting words may be painful for a moment, but they are life and peace to those who heed them. So how does Jacob then respond to God's loving correction? He repents. Verse two, put away the foreign gods, he says, that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. He prepares himself and his family and then they get up and they go in obedience and in repentance to Bethel. Jacob's first step in his repentance was to put away the foreign gods. This is not the first time we've seen these foreign gods. If you remember, uh, Moses was kind of making a mockery of the foreign gods in chapter 31. You remember Laban had these household gods. Rachel stole them. And so Laban is desperately searching for his lost little gods who could not cry out and say, this is where we're at, Laban. Where are my gods? He couldn't find them. Where were they? Rachel, during her menstrual cycle, was sitting on them. It's Moses' way of saying he's he's making a mockery of these gods who cannot help themselves. They cannot help Laban. And the, the point was to make a contrast between these foreign gods and the real and true and living God who was protecting them and guiding them and providing for them. God had been faithful to his promises to guide and protect But these idols, these household gods, these false gods are as powerless as the gods that Rachel sat on. The powerless as the gods that Laban couldn't find. Powerless as these mute gods that that couldn't cry out and say, here we are. Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was their God. And yet, Surprisingly here in chapter 35, even after seeing God's faithfulness for all these years, Jacob's family still had tucked away a few foreign gods. Just in case, you know. God's our God, but just in case God fails them. It's easy to sit in judgment on these people, but I think this is also a warning for us as a church. We come to church, we profess Christ, we trust God, we're Christians. 
And yet, despite our profession of faith, we're often still like these people, drawn to false gods, to take a few, tuck them away, to hedge our bets. Yes, we trust God, but we want to hedge our bets in the security that these false gods offer us. You know, just in case. For some, it's the God of wealth. For others, it's the God of success or being liked by others. We can make gods, false gods, out of food or sex or video games or entertainment or alcohol or drugs or anything that provides a, 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 an escape or anything that pro- provides a, secu- a promise of security from the uncertainty of tomorrow. And so we, we take these false gods, we, we tuck them away, we hold on to these false gods with a closed fist. I can't live without them. But false gods don't provide us with the security, the significance, or the satisfaction that we need. And so as Jacob held a funeral for these false gods that they buried under the, under the, the terebinth tree, God calls us to do the same, to hold a funeral for our false gods, to put away our false gods, and to trust God only, to trust God completely. We can't embrace this God in faith if our hands are full of foreign gods. We must put them away and trust him only and completely. Friends, what are our the false gods, what are the idols that you need to put away today in order for you to trust God like this? What are you hoping, what are you trusting, what are you hedging your bets with that's keeping you away from a, an all-out, complete surrender to God? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So verse two is, the first thing that he does in verse two is he puts away, his his repentance involves us putting away of false gods. But Jacob's repentance also includes in verse two, they they purify themselves and he tells them to change their garments. So it's, it's not only a negative, put away your false gods, it's also a positive of change your garments. And friends, I, 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 I pray that we don't miss this because for us to break free from our love of sin, to break free from our addiction to or our reliance on false gods, it's not just a matter of putting away sin or putting away false gods, it's also a matter of us changing our garments to, re- to replace, to, to, to have new affections, new, new trusts in, in God Or as Thomas Chalmers says, we need the expulsive power of a new affection for God. It's not just enough to put away sin and clean out the room of our hearts. We must replace it with an expulsive power of a new affection for God. As one writer notes, if all, listen, if all we seek to do in the Christian life is to stop doing wrong things, we become little Pharisees. Absolutely right, but absolutely metallic and totally unchristlike. 
Because it's not just a matter of not doing wrong things, it's also loving the right thing, trusting the right thing. Honoring God with our lips and having a heart far from him is not honoring to God. So put away the foreign idols and then change your garments. It's, it's, it's similar to the New Testament language of put off the old self and put on the new. Put off the old self that was ruined because of sin. Put on the new self with this new way of thinking, a fresh affection for God and trust in Christ. Well, how do we get this new affection for Christ? We can't manufacture it. I can't create it in my own heart. I can't create it in your heart. God must create these new affections for him. And he does it as we meditate on his word, as we gather together to sing, as we pray, as we gather together as the people of God. God gives us those new affections and love for him that we're lacking. These new affections that crowd out our old love for sin. Church, pray with me that God would form these new affections in us as a church. That God would give us such a love for him that's so strong it crowds out the sin and idolatry in our hearts and pushes it out. Well, it's amazing. After walking with Jacob so long, it's amazing to see Jacob finally obey. But it's also amazing to see Jacob lead his family. Do you notice that? Verse 1, God said. Verse 2, so Jacob said. That answers the question, how did Jacob lead his family? God said, so Jacob said to his household. That's how you lead your family. When God says, you say to your household. He took God's word seriously and he began to lead his family, perhaps for the first time, to know God's word and obey God's word. Now, ladies, if your husband is not a Christian or your husband is not in the home for whatever reason, God can use you powerfully to lead your family in the same way that God used Timothy's mother and grandmother to lead him to faith. Praise God for that. Praise God for you single mothers or, or for you ladies in this church who God is using you to raise and lead your family in that way. But if you are here and you're a Christian father, leading your family this way is our God-given privilege and it is our responsibility as the head of our household to bring up our children that God has given us in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. Now, dads, you might, have, you might hear that and you might look in the mirror and, and think, well, I've, I've dropped the ball. I've not done that well. I've not led my family in this way. And you may be wondering this morning if it's too late for you now. If, you're, if you know that discouragement, I pray that Jacob, who has waffled for years, would be an encouragement to you. Jacob is a reminder for us that it's not too late. It's only too late if you don't decide now to lead your family to know and follow God. So guys, if you don't know where to start, let me offer two encouragements. Number one, take another dad out for lunch in the next couple of weeks and ask him what this looks like in his family. What do you do? Just pummel him with questions and, and learn by example about another godly uh, father in this, in this church. We don't need to wait to be perfect before we get started. We just need to take the next step in the right direction. So learn from examples. Second encouragement, 
Tomorrow, we're planning on sending out a, a family guide in addition to our sermon discussion guide that will give some helpful suggestions and encouragements for how this could look as a family as you seek to read God's word and pray together. So uh, just check your email tomorrow, and that should be in your inbox tomorrow. Or if you don't get that, just contact the church office, and we'll get that to you right away. God's correction leads to repentance. Point number two, getting back on track. Point number two, God's comfort leads to our reassurance. God's comfort leads to our reassurance. We're going to see this in verses 9 through 15 of our text. So look with me at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come to you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him, and, God, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Now, when you read 9 through 15, if you've been reading with us through Genesis, 9 through 15 might seem a little strange. It might actually raise some questions in your mind. God changes Jacob's name from Jacob, which means trickster or, or uh, deceiver. He changes his name to Israel in verse 10. But hold on, you ask. Didn't God already do this? In chapter 32, verse 28, and the answer is yes. You keep reading. God reveals himself as God Almighty, the God who has unlimited power, unlimited resources, unlimited authority, for, who makes the impossible possible. God reveals himself as God Almighty in verse 11. But hold on, didn't he already hear about God Almighty in chapter 28, verse 3? Yes. And then God makes a covenant promise to bless Jacob in verse 9, to give him offspring in verse 11, to give him land in verse 12. And you're like, hold on. Blessing, land, offspring. Didn't God already make this covenant promises to Jacob in chapter 28, verses 13 and 14? Yes. And then last of all, Jacob names this place Bethel. Names this place Bethel. Didn't he already name it Bethel in 28, 19? It kind of feels like deja vu. We've been here before. But this is not a typo. It's not like Moses forgot that he wrote this and then just is an error in the text. No, 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 no. This is intentional. Jacob may have drifted away from God over the years. But guess what? God didn't change. And so if Jacob was worried that his unfaithfulness meant that God would then renege on his promises, God coming to Jacob in 35 and repeating again, him appearing to Jacob again and repeating everything again was an enormous comfort. It was a reminder for Jacob that what Paul says in 2 Timothy, that if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. When God makes a promise, he will keep it. 
because it's rooted in who he is. He cannot deny himself. He's faithful. Friends, like a leaky pot that drains water, we, like Jacob, forget the truths of who God is. I believe it. I believe it. Look at who God is. Two hours later, who is God again? We're like a leaky pot like that. We forget who God is. We forget the promises that God has made. And so we need regular reminders. It's a large part of what we do every Sunday is give reminders. You shouldn't hear something new and innovative that you never heard as a Christian for 40 years from this pulpit. You should hear reminders from God's word. And so we gather together each week as God commands us to in Hebrews 10. And we read God's word, we pray God's word, we sing God's word, we preach God's word, and we see God's word in baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, by the way, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We gather to remember, to be reminded. Now, back in chapter 28, verse 15, God made this glorious promise to Jacob. I will be present with you, and I will protect you until I have accomplished everything that I promised you. Did you notice in verse 3 of our text what Jacob praises God for? He says, the God who answers me in the day of my distress has been with me wherever I have gone. Or when they made their trip from Shechem to Bethel, that trip that Jacob was frightened to take. Verse 5 then says, terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. They didn't touch the sons of Jacob because God was protecting them. God was not and is not hit and miss when it comes to keeping his promises. God is not 85%, 99%. He is 100% perfect in keeping every promise that he makes all the time. So just as God's powerful word spoke creation into existence, when God said to Jacob in chapter 32, you're no longer Jacob, the deceiver. I now say and declare you to be Israel. That change was true. That change was real. And yet Jacob lived as if God's word over him was not true. Even after God changed his name and changed his person, Jacob continued to live for the next several chapters as if God's word wasn't true. He lived as if he was still the same old Jacob. Trickster, schemer, con artist, grabber. He'd, it's as if he had forgotten what God had said of who he is. He needed this reminder in verses 9 through 15. And God graciously gave it. And it led to his reassurance. Church, we need to remember that we do not walk on neutral ground. Every day, the world, the flesh, and the devil, our enemies, bombard us with lies. If we stop Jacob at any point when he was drifting away, when he was living in Shechem in partial obedience, and we said, listen, do you remember God's promise? I assume that Jacob could cognitively pull up that promise in his mind. But there's a difference between knowing something is true and using that truth. And we often forget God's promises in that sense. It's there in our minds, but we're not using that truth. We're not relying on that truth. We're not, we're not 
warring. We're not swinging the sword of God's word with that truth. And so as a result, the, 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 the enemy comes to us and he lies, and, and that lie takes the driver's seat of our lives and leaves us miserable. I was reading Psalm 71, verse 14 this week, and I was struck by how the psalmist in Psalm 71 says, he, he reaches this place where he says, I, I will hope continually. I will hope continually. I was just struck by that word continually. Uh, and how, how can we, how can we have a hope that is continuous, that is not spotty like our cell phone coverage, but a hope that is continuous and constant and continual like the psalmist had? How can we have that? We have it by coming to God, the rock of our refuge, continually. <laughs> we don't come to God once 10 years ago or once last week. We come to God continually throughout the day, moment by moment, minute by minute, hour by hour. We have fresh mercy and fresh grace today, right? You might have trusted God two hours ago, but guess what? Come to him continually. Continual hope relies upon continually coming to God throughout the day. Meditating on his word, praying on his word until it rests in our heart and our heart worships. When God confirms his word to us in that way, his comfort leads to our reassurance, just as it did for Jacob. Well, his correction leads to our repentance. God's comfort leads to our reassurance. Point number three, this is our last point. God's completing leads to our reliance. God's completing leads to our reliance. This is chapter 35, verses 16 to 29, and chapter 36. And I'm, I'm just going to give you a heads up. We're going to summarize chapter 36, okay? Whew, okay. Chapter 35, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And her soul, and as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob, who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now, the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him.
we see this contrast all throughout chapter 35 because while, while chapter 35 soars with the worship of God and the comfort of God's word, chapter 35 also aches with heartbreak and sorrow. In verse eight, we're told that Deborah, who is Rebecca's nurse, dies. So the fact that she was Rebecca's nurse reminds us that Deborah had been with this family for generations. No wonder her memorial was called Alan Bakuth, which is the Oak of Weeping. As soon as she's buried, the next funeral happens. The next funeral is Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel, who dies while giving birth. But it's not just two funerals. After Rachel's buried, Isaac dies, Jacob's father. Three funerals. So this is a time of mourning, a time of of sadness and grief. It's also a time of transition. Because now that Isaac is dead, the responsibility of leading the family is passed on to Jacob. That's a weighty task. And that lies on the shoulders of Jacob. So three funerals, added pressure of responsibility of leading the family. <laughs> it's, a reminder, it's a reminder that grief often comes to the people of God in waves. Waves and breakers, as Psalm 42 says. The wave of one trial knocks you down. And no sooner do you get up from the last trial that, bam, another wave knocks you down. That's what that, this feels like. One funeral, another funeral, a third funeral. And as, and as if these three funerals and all the mourning that goes with their death is not enough, verse 22 then tells us how Reuben, who is Jacob's firstborn, went and lay with Bilhah. I don't think this is a moment of passion. I think it's a political move by Reuben. Because by having sex with Bilhah, Reuben was attempting to take over his father's leadership position. It's the same thing that Absalom did years later with his father in 2 Samuel 16. This is a power grab. So by the end of chapter 35, three funerals, divided family, added responsibility on Jacob's shoulders, we're left thinking, good grief. What sorrow. What a mess. What a dysfunctional family. Do you see it? And this dysfunction and this mess is true. It's right there in the text. And yet, with Benjamin born and then the listing of the 12 sons, Moses is saying that the family is now complete. 12 sons. God's at work. God's using a dysfunctional family to build a nation, a people for himself. These 12 sons will become the 12 tribes of Israel. One way to put Genesis together is to zoom out. Genesis 1 through 11 is about creation, fall, curse, and the flood. Kind of, it's, 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 it's spanning a huge gap of time. And then from chapters 12 to 50 in Genesis, it kind of, the, the narrative slows down and focuses essentially on three characters. Uh, verses, chapters, Genesis 12 through 26 focus on Abraham with one chapter given to Isaac. Chapters 27 through 35 focus on Jacob. 
And then chapters 37 through 50, which we'll start next week, the focus turns to Joseph. But what about chapter 36? What do we do with chapter 36? Well, again, I'm not going to read the 43 verses of chapter 36, but I want to summarize it for us. So look at verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that's Jacob's brother, that is Edom. So chapter 36 is a genealogy of Esau. We're told that Esau married Canaanite women who are outside of the community of faith. These are unbelieving wives. Shouldn't have done that, but he does it. And then we're told that Esau moves out of the promised land. He moves southeast out of the promised land into what's known as Edom. And there in Edom, he builds an empire. One thing, one thing to note in chapter 36 is that five times, five times, Moses repeats this phrase, Esau is Edom. Esau is Edom. We see it in verse 1, verse 8, verse 9, verse 19, and in verse 43. So by repeating Esau is Edom, Moses is highlighting how quickly Esau moves into this new territory and takes over and makes it his own. So if you look at verse 15, verse 15 reads, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. Chief shows up, we're, we're, we're met, we meet this barrage of chiefs that are in the family of Esau. In fact, chief shows up 42 times in chapter 36. These are the people that are in charge of the land. They're kind of parceling out the territory and they take over. And then look at verse 31. These are the kings. So we met the chiefs and then these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Notice, before any king reigned over the Israelites. Verse 31 is key. Moses is putting the spotlight on Esau's swift rise to power, his swift rise to wealth. He moves into Edom. He takes over the land. And almost immediately, his sons and grandsons become chiefs and kings in the land of Edom. Then skip down to chapter 37, verse 1, which I think this one verse, chapter 37, verse 1, belongs with 36. Moses writes, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. So 36, focus on Esau, his sons, his chiefs, his kings, rise, this, this rise to power. In contrast is Jacob, who lived in the land of his father's sojournings. He's still a pilgrim, doesn't own the land yet, but he's in the land of Canaan. And this contrast is meant to just highlight Esau's meteoric rise to power and wealth in contrast with the slow almost unnoticeable growth in Jacob's family. As one commentator notes, secular greatness in general grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. A weed may spring up in your yard overnight, but an oak tree takes ages to be fully grown. It takes patience. 
Jacob is grieving three deaths. His family is a divided mess and God's work in and through this family will take time. When the wicked prosper and the righteous have to wait and wait and wait and wait, it's tempting in those moments to envy the wicked. That's what Psalm 37 is about. That's what Psalm 73 is about. Maybe take some time this afternoon and read those Psalms, Psalm 37 73. Following God takes patient faith. But Jacob is finally getting there. Look back with me at when Rachel was facing the unexpected complications in her labor. Chapter 35, verse 17. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but her father, Jacob, called him Benjamin. Now listen, Rachel's death would have been catastrophic for Jacob. Rachel was the, the, the woman he loved, so her death would have been earth-shattering and devastating. And so after she had given birth to one child, Rachel had long, long hoped for a second child. And here in the end of Jacob's story, she's finally pregnant. But when she's given birth and faces these complications, she realizes that she was not going to make it. She was not going to be able to enjoy the child that she had long, long hoped for. And so she names this child Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Her naming that child Ben-Oni reflects her hopelessness and her despair. But Jacob, whose name has been changed to Israel, says, I love you, honey, but no. He will not be called Ben-Oni. He will be called Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And the right hand in the Old Testament is a symbol of strength and God's grace or favor. In other words, in one of the greatest sorrows that Jacob will ever know in his life, the death of Rachel, we see Jacob, in naming his son Benjamin, we see Jacob finally leaning in to the providence of God. By naming him Benjamin, he's not denying the pain. It would have been earth-shattering. But in naming him Benjamin, he's saying, I know this hurts, but I know that even in this, even in something this dark, this painful, God is good. And God will use it for good. So he will not be called Ben-Oni. He will be called Benjamin. Well, how can we be sure that Jacob is not just being his old self, you know, the schemer, the trickster? Because after burying Rachel, verse 21 says, Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. Jacob is finally starting to live as the man that God had declared him to be. Not as the trickster anymore, Jacob, but as Israel. Jacob's situation is a broken mess. But God is glorified, church, in using dysfunctional sinners who are willing to trust him. To bring about his good purposes and his plan in this world. 
It's what Jesus taught in Matthew 16, 18. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But this process of him completing his good work that he's begun in us and the church takes patience. So in our waiting, how can we be sure that God is good? That his plan is good? Or coming back to our original question, if God completing his work in us involves pain and sorrow, and it will, then how can we be sure today that his good work in us is good news? Friends, the best answer that we have is Jesus. It's the person of Jesus. In the New Testament, Paul writes in Romans 8, verses 32 through 34, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God interceding for us. I love that. Because as one writer notes, Jesus stepped down from being the son of God at the father's right hand, the place of honor, the place of strength, to become the son of sorrow in his incarnation. And he became the son of sorrow for sinners like us. Do you see God's heart for us in this? Do you see God's goodness in this? God's desire from the very beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, God's desire has always been to bless his people. And when our sin got in the way of God blessing us, God didn't ditch us. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Because it's on the cross, Jesus laid down his life for our sin. He died, he died paying the death penalty that our sins deserve. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And now because he's alive, he calls us to turn from our sin, to put away our foreign gods, our false gods, our idols, and to trust in Christ alone. If you're not yet a Christian, I implore you today to put your hope and your faith in Christ and Christ alone, to trust in him completely. And he will be faithful to his word to forgive and to reconcile you to the Father. And if you are a Christian, whether you've been walking with God for three weeks or for 30 years, my prayer for you and for myself is that we would come to God continually to lean into the providence of God even when it's hard because God is good and his good work in us is good news. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your faithfulness, your mercy, your kindness, your goodness to us. We, like Jacob, do not deserve your attention or your care. We deserve death and hell. And yet because of Christ, you've made a way possible for us to be right with you. Even when we lose our grip on you, you hold us fast. And so we love you and we thank you and we praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.